0: From the New York office of Oxford University Press, this is The Oxford Comet, a monthly podcast featuring Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name's Nicole, multimedia producer, and our guests today are S.J. Miller and David Kirkland. Here at Oxford University Press, you could say we know a thing or two about the importance of language. Just take a look at one of our rather large dictionaries. However, like most things in life, Language is changing, and continues to be reimagined and reconstructed due to our cultural influences. This episode focuses on engendering communication and the powerful influences that go into it. At this point in history, it is critical that we as English speakers acknowledge the issues that have always existed in our lexicon, and improve our current language to reflect our contemporary culture. This episode features a discussion with scholars S.J. Miller and David Kirkland, who are well-versed in the linguistic patterns of diverse social markers. During this conversation, they continue on with the dialogue regarding the constant innovation within linguistics, especially in the predetermined frameworks of gender, race, sexuality, and more. Additionally. This episode focuses on the ways to improve our current social tendencies, such as our interactions with those who do not identify with generalized identity markers. Our speakers offer guidance and advice to teachers and educators alike to promote the welcoming of reconstructing social identities while avoiding discriminatory predispositions. But most importantly, SJ and David help us with focusing on the bigger picture and have us wondering, how can we, as listeners and learners, respectfully keep up with the constantly changing lexicon? And how can we positively reinforce it?
1: So, I'm SJ Miller. Um, I am the Deputy Director of Education Equity Supports and Services at Metro Center, and I work with David Kirkland.
2: And I'm David Kirkland, I'm the Executive Director of the NYU Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools. I'm also a professor of English and Urban Education at New York University. I also work with SJ.
1: First, I want to start with with the current culture of youth and the ways that youth are self-determining their gender identity. Um, Schools are not yet quite set up to help teachers and administrators, superintendents, et cetera, understand the nuances around Allowing self determination in curriculum. I think plenty of, of teachers are starting to do some work, but we're still lagging behind um, around embedding it actually in classroom practice. And so, what's happening is we see a youth culture today that are living in coded spaces. And what I mean by coded spaces is outside of the traditional system of school, they are finding these um, archipelagos with each other and they are creating terms, they are recognizing each other in those terms, they're creating spaces where they get to identify in ways that that is completely inventive and even imaginary. And so what happens in those spaces then is that when somebody recognizes that term, it all of a sudden validates it. And so what we're seeing then is those terms, um, those students are using both on Instagram and Tumblr and on YouTube, and they are out there demonstrating who they are and self-determining that. Now the problem is that when they get to school, many of those terms move by the wayside. So what I'd like to see and what the kind of work that I'm doing is helping teachers think about the ways that students are bringing language into schools and supporting them in embedding that in classroom practice.
2: So if we think about just a history of language education in the United States, and what young people have done historically with the language. It's, it's always interesting that in some ways, young people are more inventive. In some ways, they are ahead of the curve when it comes to language and language use. So so in, if we think about youth culture, right, you think about the ways that youth find themselves, locate themselves, they're being creative with the language, they're making up the language, you know, um, m- at much in a creative way as possible. And yet schools try, schools attempt to bind young people, you know, um, to language standardization that doesn't necessarily fit them, right? And so I think the question of youth and language is important, but there's also a question of, you know, race and language and, you know, other forms of vulnerability in language. And it's the ways that schools not only standardize language and bind young people to particular languages, but the ways that, you know, establishment structures penalize or criminalize particular forms of language so if you take african-american language for instance we know that african-american language is rule-governed um, based on a set of principles so if you take syntax you know um, in an example like the copula the copula form of the verb to be so the copula is the conjugation of the verb to be The is in our form that exists within english well in west african languages that is in our form doesn't exist the survival of the um absence of the copula within african-american language is one of these powerful practices that are that's rehearsed you know throughout um african-american language Youth take this form on, especially in hip-hop. And so instead of saying she is there, you have she there. Um, And and in schools, you see a lot of African-American students and other students who are in some ways intimate with the hip-hop culture and hip-hop linguistics being penalized. You know, um, for that feature of language that is SJ says, and I agree completely with SJ, you know, it's part of a larger practice of constructing identity um, that's not based around the standardizations of schools, but based on something else. And we see schools and other establishment forms penalize young people um, and disproportionately penalizing young people of color.
1: Yeah, so I I completely agree. So for me then thinking about this in a broader context is so what are we doing in teacher education to prepare our pre-service teachers, and even those in-service and professional development models to understand like what David's talking about and how do we fold that into classrooms? And and one of the criticisms I have as teacher education is that we need a class on sociolinguistics or discourse patterns um, as a way of validating and taking up some of these issues. So what we have too, which is interesting, is we have this kind of base language. If you look at patterns in sociolinguistics, and even there's a, a there's a field now called translinguistics that's emerging um, out of UC Santa Barbara, and what they're arguing is that we have what's called an, an indexical principle, and that indexical principle says that all identities are in relationship to to dominant hegemonic hierarchies of of naming and gender. And so what's happened then is that if you even think about the inventiveness like David's talking about, or the inventiveness of um, gender non-binary kids, or youth, excuse me, um, is that their identity markers are still in relationship to those hegemonic terms, right? Because they are um, in opposition to, they recognize that core, and they are pushing back on that so that they then become self-determined with how they want to be seen and identified
2: and just push back just a little bit because i think when you begin to talk about african-american language and other forms of language hybridity from communities of color um language takes on a nuanced reality and i think smitherman says it well in her work is that often people think of african-american language as resistance to mainstream white language and smitherman is arguing that it's not it's just the language that they were born into, it's a community that they were born into, and that the centralization or centricity of, you know, um, some Eurocentric linguistic model, you know, um, is further perpetuating a type of um, hegemony, right, dominance toward African American language. There's, a, there's other ways to look at youth culture as well as cultural linguistics, you know, um, that does not necessarily center you know, um the West, but I do want to talk about, you know, what's going on in, you know, teacher education programs. And I agree with you. I think we need to do a better job in teacher education programs, you know, um, in teaching language critically. Uh, there is a field called critical linguistics that I do think should be, you know, um explored more by teacher educators. Um, but we know that based on a few decisions, um, the 1974 um, Lau versus Nichols Supreme Court decision, the 1979 and Arbor decision, um, and to an extent the Brown versus Board of Education decision, um, as well as some other, you know, um, looming um, legislations within language policy that universities, you know, um, in schools, most of them that prepare teachers you know, um, have some form of socio sociolinguistic, you know, um, teacher training. The problem with these programs, one is that they're one semester, they're codified within a course, and we know that you can probably have a whole degree, you know, um, just based in language study and language education, right? The, the, the idea is that if you take a course, you're somehow, you know, um, more sensitive and more knowledgeable about language itself and but the data doesn't bear that out what the data says is that students you know um who take this course their linguistic attitudes don't change radically and sometimes those linguistic attitudes what victoria purcell gates and her work calls linguisticism, right those attitudes that are discriminatory of people based on language sometimes those you know um tendencies deepen well what does that mean that means that the course model isn't enough. We need other points of exposure, other ways to frame the conversation around, you know, um, language so that we can develop more tolerant teachers. I also think you need to begin to screen, right? Because if an individual is sitting in a classroom and they carry discriminatory assumptions about a student based on their language, I would say that that teacher doesn't need to be teaching or that teacher isn't yet ready to teach. We need some other forms of you know, gatekeeping, if you will, within this conversation in order to promote better linguistic well-being for our teachers, as well as, you know, create conditions that are less discriminatory for, you know, students who, who speak a variety of languages. There's a sophistication when we talk about young people in language. Maisha Nguyen, in her book, Writing and Rhythm, writes about the students in the South Bronx. They use this term called white use this term called wifing because what they notice in their neighborhood there's this situation that sits between being someone's girlfriend and being someone's you know wife and within their situation they people or the young people that when speaks to they begin to talk about tell the story about you know people they know who's more than a girlfriend but less than, you know, a wife. So they say that she's a woman who's been with a man for 10 years and, you know, he treats her like a wife, they may have kids together, but she's not necessarily wife because she doesn't have a ring and he doesn't intend to marry her. And so what they found, you talk about innovation in terms of language is that the language that we have within the English lexicon, you know, isn't good enough to begin to explain this phenomenon that they are seeing. And so they invent the language. And in and, and, and inventing the language, they begin to capture the nuance of this phenomenon that has in it, you know, a type of gender consciousness. And that gender consciousness is that the reality of seeing women been treated in a particular pedestal type of way, and having language in order to articulate that reality, a language that doesn't necessarily exist within the English terms that they have. And we see this replete throughout usages of African-American language. When we begin to you know, lay gender on the conversation of language, right? Marcelina Morgan, she writes powerfully about how African-American language is primarily based on African-American male language and how features of African American language and the study of black women, you know, languaging is just now becoming a popular study. African American language is the study of male language, but it becomes even more interesting when you begin to look at the gender um, politic that exists within African American language that the same politics of gender that exists outside of um, African-American language is there, too. And that's a type of patriarchy and hegemony of like male discourse. Within broader US society, if African-American language is a male discourse that is absent the female accent, then the rejection of African-American language is a type of rejection and deficitizing of, you know, I'm African-American men and African-American masculinity. And it doesn't negate the idea or it doesn't negate the fact that African-American language as a construct is itself patriarchal. But at the same time, you know, um, it plays within this power conversation, you know, where, you know, people of color, the languages that they speak, even in the masculine form, are still in some ways seen as deficit within the broader you know, um, conversation.
1: Now, what David's saying too, if you think about it and you add to it, when, when we take up all the different statistics that show that black youth are disproportionately pushed into school to prison pipeline or have lower GPAs or discipline more, you know, we could go on with the statistics. You add being queer to that, it exacerbates all those statistics. And for both boys and girls of color, for both black and brown and even Native American and other indigenous um, youth of color, we're seeing the same thing happen. So we've got you know race layered on top of uh, perceptions around gender and, and sexuality. Now, if you think about it too from this lens, you know, the other side, the pushback is that, okay, we have a certain type of discourse that, that students are supposed to use in schools. And Vershan Ashanti talks about this in his book on, on code, code meshing and code switching. The problem with code switching is that that's a neo-form of segregation, right? It's saying you can do this here, but you can't do it there. And so there's been a huge pushback in sociolinguistics about using the word code switching. And what Varshawn talks about is code meshing and code shifting. Right. So it's the bringing together of multiple discourses in any one space and be, and moving back and forth between them. In fact, uh, David talked about Geneva, Geneva Smitherman. Um, Geneva and Sammy Aleem wrote Articulate While Black. And one of the things they talked about um, is that Barack Obama was a master code mesher and a master code shifter and that he could speak to multiple audiences in any one space, which is one of the reasons he was able to get elected, because he could appeal to the masses, and also because many of us, many people were still nostalgic for Martin Luther King, who was one of the master orators, that he was able to, that um, Obama was able to even appeal to a religious audiences. And so when you see kids come to school, and they're expected to use what James G talks about, the the big D discourse, and their students are using their little D discourse, like their home discourses, their family, their cultural discourses, they're penalized for that. And that's a huge problem because we know that kids that are taking exams or AP tests or IB tests or, or going off into college are expected, they're forced to write a certain way and their home languages are diminished because of that. Now, I'm not to say that the system can't be changed. The system is broke, but we're, many of us are on the path to trying to change that system. But I think so much of that has to come in our aptitudes, our attitudes and within teacher education. I don't know if we're gonna change policymakers perceptions. But I do think that over time when you get enough teacher educators and enough people doing this professional development that change will continue to happen. And it is happening but just on a smaller scale level.
2: I want to take the conversation back to the um, gender and language because I thought I think that you started this segment of the conversation off with a set of compelling ideas that I that I agree with and I think, you know, are central to the conversation, right? And that is this notion of intersectionality Um, as it relates to language and language development. You know, at one level, we can talk about Black language. We can talk about Black language as, you know, a type of masculine discourse understood by the rules of Black male users. In language, we call them interlocutors. But it's quite another thing to begin to think about ways that sexuality, sexual orientation, gender presentation, and gender identity enters that conversation. And we know that even within African-American language, the discourse itself, is extremely, extremely homophobic in the sense that, you know, if you take two luminary spaces, athletics and entertainment, where African-American language gains purchase into the mainstream, it's fiercely in its own way, not only deeply misogynistic, but also homophobic. And, and, and there's some good writing Vershawn Young, among others, have written about the ways that African-American language or language within the African-American community, you know, um, has so outcast other gender identities. And yet we see within the African-American queer community a type of flamboyant, vivacious and powerfully loud African-American language that has become the voice of people like RuPaul, as well as The elegant voice of some of our best writers, people like James Baldwin. And so, in some ways, there's that tension within African American language that sits closer and closer to patriarchy and a hegemonic form of masculinity. We see it resisting various forms of gender identity. And at the same time, we see queer black folk take up African American language and do beautiful, powerful things with it. We see them making a different type of music with that language that I think is, you know, um, worth paying attention to. One of the things that
1: David was just saying was the inventiveness of people who are queer or trans such as like people like Janet Mock and even Laverne Cox and I could go on with you know names but it's it's not only is it a form of resistance but it's a form of surviving not survival but surviving and it's again in these spaces that they're able to find recognition and validation in each other's communities and that is part of the way that that the community continues to reinvent itself I always talk about the difference between codification and reification. And the way I see it is that as soon as something becomes codified, right, you start putting down it as an object. When something is objectified, there's this notion, I've got to get out of it. Because once you figure that space out, then you can set, other groups can set rules and parameters on it. And so I see communities, not just of color, but you know, youth of color, And, you know, other, other trans kids and other gender fluid kids resisting the codification so that they can set their own rules. And I would say that their rules are not anarchy, but they're about reinvention, constant reinvention, reimagination, disruption, interruption in order to survive within dominant culture.
2: Yeah, I think I think it's interesting, you know, in a conversation around language and gender, that Michael Eric Dyson's name comes up. You know, Michael Eric Dyson is, of course, a black man, you know, from my hometown, Detroit. And he utilizes African-American language in a very, very powerful way, especially the mode of discourse. smithering in her piece on 1977 book, you know, um, Talking and Testifying, she writes about the closeness, the intimacy, the proximity that African-American language has to to the church, the black church, the ways that it incubates there among other places. And that sermonic tone becomes one of these discourse modes. In fact, I enjoy it myself. I love you know, speaking in that vernacular. It's not that, you know, it's something that I I began doing deliberately, but it is something I embrace as a black male who speaks Ebonics, African-American language, who speaks a variety of it that has incubated within a Pentecostal black theological tradition, right? You know, it's interesting that Dyson's name comes up because one criticism of African-American language, you know, and its embrace, almost full-throated embrace of, um, Hegemonic patriarchy or masculinity is the performance that black men do. It's often, you know, loud, it's often highly elaborate and performative, much like Michael Eric Dyson's writing. And I'm wondering if that is the language to speak to the masses, if that is the language that exists within African-American discourse tradition that's important, you know, for white, white folk, right? And so let me just give some background. Martin Luther King achieved some success in terms of speaking to white audiences through the sermonic tone is african-american mode of discourse barack obama has too michael eric dyson achieves a lot of acclaim you know and speaking in this way we know others people like chris endon i've seen jeff duncan Andrade, Pedro Noguer, even myself you know use this discourse in order to amaze and dazzle audiences and to me it seems that there's a certain type of charisma that's tied to this function of discourse and yet at the same time it doesn't recognize its own misogyny or its own patriarchy and i'm wondering if there are other gendered alternatives that we should begin to think about in terms of bringing across a message within her work marcelina morgan as well as elaine richardson who, who also writes about african-american female language they write about power the strength and yet politeness that exist within African-American female words that don't necessarily exist within the hyper hypermasculine black male discourse. And I'm wondering if, if an Audre Lorde treatment of the same issues, as opposed to a Michael Eric Dyson treatment of these issues, might be what's called for. One thing that we learned from the black women writers of the 1980s is a type of elegance, as well as a type of, capturing of our humanity, from Alice Walker to Toni Morrison to Mother Maya, as well as, you know, many others that's capable of not necessarily just performing our humanity in a type of fetishized strength, but getting us to another place. And that is a place where, you know, we are healing with our words while also helping others to understand, you know, the wounds that they cause and that are being caused because of a rejection of those same words.
1: I think when you are not living in someone else's skin or gender identity or religion, that there's a fear of when you take up parts of, even because it comes from a place of, of deeply like feeling someone else's experience, even though you can never be someone's experience, but you can feel it and sense it. Is people fear that they're going to be criticized for appropriation? So, as someone who appears white, I identify as Semitic. I come from a family of Holocaust survivors. Um, we are Sephardic Jews. You know, I'm I'm red as white, and that's that's fine. I'm red as white, but I don't come from that that space. I do have white privilege. My question then becomes: Is when we want to take up the affect? Right? If you want to all of a sudden David sachet, right, or if you want to emulate some some other um, mannerism that you've seen that in fact is a source of empowerment within another community, how you will be read. Because I think, while I know you are a deep ally to so many different communities, as, as am I, I fear, though, that I will be judged and criticized for... Like, I, I'm, a, I'm very observant, so I've got all these kind of ideas in my head, but I don't necessarily do them because of not living in someone else's skin. So I wonder if kind of intersecting, transecting other people's um, identities as, as a form of bringing us together, not making fun of, is a way of creating more harmony. I mean, what do, what do you think about that?
2: i mean i think there's a danger i like i always get uncomfortable when the term you know um appropriation comes up because it's not clear to me that you know um and i'll just be i'll just put it out there it's not clear any white folk understand you know on um, that term and within the context of a settler colonial state like the united states you know various things become property right you know um Exactly exactly the property of another, and it can be reclaimed for their gain, you know um until they're done with it and they throw it away, and that's harmful and that's violent you know on um, the black folk. One thing that we see is that at the same time African American language gets you know um feared and it and it, it gets criminalized and vilified you know um it also becomes you know um fetishized, so those fetishes and phobias exist side by side. And we have to reconcile that within the American consciousness. Larger systems of oppression play out even among the oppressed. And when we add gender to the conversation, gender to the equation, it seems to me because of these fears and and fetishes, because of these phobias and and these really incarnate desires that we have around black men, we have to come to reconcile the ways that we have ignored voice, the whisper, the quiet, the song the poetry of otherly gendered people of color, black women, queer folk of color, non-gender conforming folk of color. I think I think that within my conversation and my question was that we're asked to listen to Tyson because he's loud and he's poetic and he fills the room, right? He takes up the type of linguistic space that that, that calls the recognition and it plays into, you know, this really troubling tension that we have around phobia and fetish and yet, we miss out on the talent, the beauty, the wisdom that's housed in the voice of, you know, massages and beloved, or in Seeley in and Color Purple, in the other beautiful, articulate voices of black women, women in, you know, into sake Sange's for color girls, or Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider, we're, we're, we, we miss these other delicate dialects that don't penetrate because they're a product of a different type of African-American language. I wish Marce, Marcelina Morgan was here because she probably could say this better than I could. You know, we miss, we miss the beauty of that other form the stigmatized tongue because the masculine impulse, the masculine voice takes up so much space.
1: I think that in many ways you can draw a parallel then to cisgender bodies right, and to gender norms because, you know, schooling practices are all through the dominant gaze of cisgender bodies and heteronormativity. And so when you're working with youth, you know, unless a teacher knows how to disrupt that system, again, you're reinforcing these ties to, dom- you know, to patriarchy, to the submission of women to men. And I think, you know, David named a, a, a ton of texts, Again, I just read a book over the last few weeks called None of the Above, which is absolutely fascinating. And it's a book about an intersex team. And that's one topic, uh, er, topic of focus that we don't even look at in schools. Like we never name the LG, we say LGBT or gender fluid, but we tend to leave out the I. And, you know, in statistics show, I think it's like, I'm probably going to be wrong, but like one in every 2,000 people are intersex. So where are those books? You know where where are those focus areas where we can start to bring that that focus into the class um, and I worry because unless we are actively doing the disruption and bringing in uh, patterns around or excuse me disrupting those patterns around gender and cisgender um, bodies that we're going to continue to reinforce cycles of violence you know, our silence on issues becomes part of the, the violence within systems. You know, Ellie Wiesel said, silence and indifference is the greatest sin of all. You know, we could, we could take that quote into many different ways, but our silence and not naming issues allow those spaces to continue to be prejudiced and, you know, misgendered or misraced or misrecognized.
2: Michelle Alexander, in some ways, in conversation with Elie Vizel talks about indifference as this new more pernicious form of racism. You know, it's not the overt form of racism. It's this idea that if it's not your problem, it's not a problem, right? The form of privilege that does damage to, you know, many people, especially the more powerful can form a consensus not to recognize, not to hear, not to do anything. You know, and it is it is within not only that indifference, but in that apostasy that, you know, forms of not only violence, but deep dehumanization and indignity, you know, human suffering and even death, social and otherwise, it's in that stew that these things linger, right? And so I think to your point, you know, there's a question about, you know, what must we do, right? How might we begin to affirm the rights, linguistic rights and otherwise rights? How might we begin to Open ears and lanes to hearings. How might we begin to cultivate audiences? Otherwise, to use Lisa Patel's, you know, um, term. And I think I think we begin with, you know, the type of consciousness-raising stuff that you're talking about. The first point of consciousness-raising is that we have to break down this mythology that the dominant language is the only language, and anything that deviates from that dominant language is a broken form of it. Right. And first we have to recognize that that construct, that intellectual ideological construct is in itself an error and beyond just being an error. It's, it's egregious. It's, a, it's an egregious fabric of linguistic discrimination that we have to utterly destroy and do away with. Right. And in its place. We have to begin to think about, you know, the various ways that, you know, languages exist side by side, the various ways that languages, as well as people and cultures, you know, um, are in constant shift or transition, constantly moving. And we also have to think about the various ways that languages, like you said, as you began the conversation, SJ, you know, the ways that language is doing hard work for people. And a lot of that work, especially for the historically disadvantaged for the vulnerable a lot of that work deals with survival it deals with you know cultivating a space and an opportunity that one can call their own it's about defining oneself on one's own terms and when our consciousness is raised to that point then we can begin to engage in other forms of work that become necessary but that consciousness raising piece is you know um extremely important and in order to be conscious one has to open one's mind and realize that there, there's other forms of knowledge and other points of view that one could be open to. Instead of failing students, we have to ask our students, I mean, instead of labeling them as failing students, we have to ask the question, how are we failing students? Instead of you know, labeling them as disengaged you know, language users or students who don't come to us with language or students who come to us with broken languages, we have to ask the question, About, you know, how can we engage in their languages? How can we engage in their cultures? I think one thing that teachers can do, I mean, there are at least two, three levels of work. There's policy, there's practice, and there's perception. I always think that the conversation starts with the third P. And that is perception. One thing that teachers can do right away is begin to challenge whenever they come up deficit theories. And these are questions and assumptions that always start with what do a young person lack or what do a young person does not um, do not have. And I think in terms of that deficit perspective, I think it's important for us to exchange that perspective for what I call a profit perspective. And that begins with, you know, what do they possess? What do they have? And how can we begin to cultivate a place and a space for this within our policies that govern school, as well as within our practices that are enacted within schooling spaces. And when we begin to do that, we shift the conversation around education and we humanize the young people that we're working with. Totally agree with what David's saying.
1: And I just want to add, you know, one, one of the things he's talking about is you know, Luis Small and Norma Gonzalez's work, Funds of Knowledge, right? So what, what are their funds of knowledge? What is in their bags that we can build on as teachers? And how can we use that as an asset in our classrooms rather than a deficit? And the other person that comes to mind is Shirley Bryce Heath's book, Ways with Words, you know, which is looking at the funds of knowledge within an agrarian um, Appalachian community where kids were learning literacy by reading Hallmark cards and reading recipes and so their literacy was being built around their families and their homes but as soon as they got to school those skills weren't transferring because the teacher wasn't looking to build upon those funds of knowledge so i would agree completely when david starts talking when david's mentions, you know we have to look at ourselves the problem is that if we don't know that if we don't know what we don't know we know <laughs> how do we know to start looking at ourselves if you know what i mean So how do we know that we're taking on a deficit perspective? I mean, again, I think this comes back to teacher education. How do we, what can we do to to open up mindsets? What can we do to say, you know, a pedagogy of elasticity? How do we open that space up to know that I'm allowed to mess up? I'm allowed to be um, in a space of um, grayness and, and really focus on what the youth are bringing into the classroom and building upon that, building curriculum upon that. Why can't I get to know my students first and build my curriculum around that? So, I mean, I think this again comes back to professional education models and thinking about how do we we change, how do we reset those models? So we're putting our students first. I think that's the only way to change the system, put students first and allow ourselves
2: to be open to the gray. I don't think that we can afford to allow individuals, you know, who carry violent tendencies and violent assumptions, you know, um, to persist within, you know, schooling. If we worked in, or if we were talking about elite forms of education, K-12 institutions or K-12 institutions that serve elite elite populations, we wouldn't have this conversation because they wouldn't have teachers. They wouldn't tolerate teachers that did damage to students that were violent towards students, that had violent perceptions and violent assumptions toward those students. Within elite situations, we actually do take a profit perspective. They actually do build upon you know, on their knowledge background. And this is the work that SJ just cited, Shirley Bryce Heath's work. What Bryce Heath finds in um, her um, book, Ways with Words, 1983, is that schools reflect and mirror You know, the types of language and literacy practices that are articulated, and are espoused in practice within middle class elite, you know, um, communities. Conversely, they don't necessarily reflect those practices of black communities or, you know, poor white communities. We we have to understand that the situation of inequality and the situations of inequity that persists within schooling are not allowed to persist within elite situations and certainly among elite populations. And so we have to say say the same thing when we're talking about students who are more vulnerable. We cannot allow them to persist in situations where they have teachers who are not sensitive to their humanity and who do not have a level of dignity or can't bring a level of dignity to the practice of teaching with them. Dignity enough to, you know, begin to search out, you know, um, the funds of knowledge that may exist um, within their cultures and communities. And so what I would say is that we need more rigorous screening, you know, for the teachers that we allow in schools. And we need screening mechanisms that will actually begin to assess and measure The levels of intolerance, linguistic intolerance and otherwise, that teachers have and and prerequisite to, you know, becoming a teacher needs to be a certain type of level of, you know, empathy toward difference and toward individuals. We need more, you know, rigorous standards when it comes to teaching, and we have to begin to disallow people who carry extreme forms of prejudice, you know, from entering our classroom. You know, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. In some ways, we are inventors. I don't think that we're in a place of total darkness or darkness at all, That each of us, you know, um, who dare begs to question or the light, we have to do the work. You know, part of our humanity, you know, part of our responsibility to one another is to constantly be working, not necessarily the passive work of being taught, but the active work of finding out what we don't know and figuring out what's necessary in order to, you know, um, make better and brighter our humanity. You know, it is our human obligation. It can be done. And I'm encouraged that we will do it. I'm optimistic because of this conversation and others like it, you know, um, that we'll do the work. I think
1: it's really important that... We absolutely stay committed to the work, no matter how hopeless it might seem in front of us. That we have to keep our, you know, keep our eyes on our youth, work with our youth, keep our feet on the ground, um, and continue to build on what's around us. Um, there's so much good that can come from creating coalitions and working together, and that as as dark as it might seem sometimes, like whether it's the government or somebody is shot or killed or, you know, we just hit, I think it was number 19 for trans women of color, um, recorded deaths this year, um, and may they rest in power. While, while I see this happening and my heart breaks, it reminds me that we still have so much work to do. And there's so many people out there who are fighting for equality. And honestly, I'd rather take a bullet fighting the good fight And sitting in my home doing nothing.
0: It may seem like we have a long way to go with this discussion, but a little bit of acceptance and understanding goes a tremendously long way. Thank you again to S.J. Miller and David Kirkland for participating on this episode of The Oxford Comment, Engendering Communication. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, you can find The Oxford Comment on SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, the Oxford University Press blog. Thanks for listening.